Hello and welcome. James Kenny here, and this is my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset. This is episode 19, about the Act of Union, 1800. This podcast is not supported by advertising, so if you wish, you could become a patron by visiting www.landofthegoldensunset.podbean.com. I welcome your views and comments, and please tell others about this podcast. I hope you like it. The Irish were cruelly deprived of their lands for centuries. In 1800, a move was made by the English to take over the whole island of Ireland, to join it under closer domination and rule from London, in what became the British Isles. This was known as the Act of Union. By deliberate trickery on the part of the establishment, Ireland was now ruled from Westminster. This change was unsuccessfully resisted by Irish parliamentarians such as Henry Grattan, John Philpot Curran and Edmund Burke. Their gift of oratory was not sufficient to stop the sale of the land of the golden sunset. In the face of bribes and inducements to those who could be bought to vote away their country as an independent nation. Ireland, up to this Act of Union, was legally an independent nation, the King being represented in Ireland by a Lord Lieutenant who controlled the Irish executive, who in turn controlled the patronage, that is, peerages, placemen and pensions. Now the Government of Westminster exercised control over all. The English Chancellor of the Exchequer took charge of Ireland's accounts with scant concern for balancing the books, since the debts increased from 2.4 million in 1793 to 112.5 million in 1817, having made Ireland liable to enormous taxes for England's warmongering. England never granted anything to Ireland from a sense of justice, and only when news reached her that their generals had surrendered to the Americans did Lord North, Frederick North, 2nd Earl of Guildford, the English Prime Minister, predominantly remembered as the Prime Minister who lost America, express a desire to relax the penal laws in Ireland. The independence of the United States was acknowledged by France in January 1778. The English then passed a bill for the relief of Roman Catholics in Ireland, and in May, the Parliament in Dublin passed a bill enabling Catholics to take land on a long lease. They also repealed the unnatural law altering the succession in favour of a child embracing Protestantism and also the law for the persecution of priests and the imprisonment of Catholic schoolmasters. The Irish owe a debt of gratitude to America, whose voice even then was loud in proclaiming justice for Ireland in return for the favour of Irishmen, who, when forced to emigrate, had fought in her battles to restore her own independence in the American Revolution for American liberty. Loudon tells us that in Ireland the people assumed the cause of America through sympathy.
In 1790, George Washington received an address from the Catholics of America, signed by Bishop John Carl of Baltimore, Maryland, 1735 to 1815, and many other dignitaries. Replying to that address, Washington, a calm and brave man with the magnificent bearing, replied thus, I hope ever to see America amongst the foremost nations in examples of justice and liberty, and I presume that your fellow citizens will not forget the patriotic part which you took in the accomplishment of their revolution and in the establishment of their government, or in the important assistance they received from a nation in which the Roman Catholic religion is professed. In December 1781, the friendly sons of St. Patrick were great friends of this great American and father of his country. When his army lay at Valley Forge, 27 members of this society of the friendly sons subscribed between them in July 1780, £103,500 sterling for the American troops who were in dire need of funds. George Washington accepted the fellowship of their society when he said, I accept with singular pleasure the ensign of so worthy a fraternity as that of the Sons of St. Patrick in this city, a society distinguished for the firm adherence of its members to the glorious cause in which we are embarked. This society was formed to help the unusual number of impoverished and displaced Irishmen who had arrived in New York in the wake of the British evacuation. During 1784 and in subsequent years, they provided money, food, clothing and shelter to the less fortunate fellow countrymen. These were acts of personal and collective charity. At West Point, when the traitor Benedict Arnold betrayed the cause, Washington was obliged to choose the very best and most reliable soldiers in his army and send them to save West Point. From his whole army he selected the celebrated Pennsylvania Line, as they were called, and this force was mainly made up of Irishmen. They fought bravely and bled for Washington and America, and Washington loved them. On September the 21st, 1780, during the American Revolution, American General Benedict Arnold met with British Major John Andre to discuss handing over West Point to the British in return for the promise of a large sum of money and a high position in the British Army. The Act of Union was a poor consolation for the Irish at home in Ireland. After they had been robbed and stripped of their property, now to make a condescending law abolishing the distinction between them and the English. When the Irish were struggling for emancipation, they appealed for sympathy and moral support to America. And why is this imposing appeal made to our sympathies? asks the son of George Washington's stepson. Here is the testimony of George Washington Park Curtis. It is an appeal from the very Ireland whose generous sons alike in the days of our gloom and our glory shared in our misfortunes and joined in our success, who with undaunted courage breasted the storm, which once threatened to overwhelm us, howled with fearful and desolating fury through this now happy land, 
who with aspirations deep and fervent for our cause, were, under the walls of the castle of Dublin, in the shock of our liberty's battles, or in the feeble and expiring accents of famine and misery, amidst the horrors of the prison ship, cried from their hearts, God save America. Tell me not of the aid which we received from another European nation in the struggle for independence. That aid was most, nay all, essential to our utmost success. But remember, years of conflict had rolled away, but up to the coming of the French, Ireland had furnished, in the ratio of one hundred for one, of any other foreign nation. Then honoured be the old good service of the sons of Erin in the War of Independence. Let the shamrock be entwined with the laurels of the revolution and truth and justice. Guiding the pen of history, inscribe on the tablets of America's remembrances eternal gratitude to Irishmen. The Catholic Irish, as brave soldiers, were sought by many nations. They could not engage in arms in their own country because of the cruel laws passed by the English to keep them forever enslaved. But the glory of the Irish was everywhere abroad, and they were well known for their courage and strength on many a battlefield abroad. The story is told of how Patrick Sarsfield fell in the moment of victory when the Irish brigade fighting the English in the bloody battle of Landon while leading the brigade to victory for the French. In the pangs of pain from a musket shot, he placed his hand over the wound near his heart and when he removed it, the blood dripped from it. Gazing at it for a moment, he said in a sorrowful tone with his dying breath, Oh, that this were for Ireland. To try and bring about the act of union, every cunning trick was used. The Unionists secretly assured the Catholic bishops that if the Union was passed, one of their first acts should be Catholic emancipation. On the other hand, they informed the Protestants in a treacherous and fraudulent way when they told them, There is no safety for you, no security for the Protestant Church, unless in a union with England. In Ireland, you are a miserable minority and some day will be overwhelmed. Whereas united to Great Britain, you will be an indivisible part of one vast Protestant majority and can afford to defy the Papists. The last session of the Irish Parliament assembled on the 15th of January 1800. In a barefaced, fraudulent way, 27 new peers had been added to the House of Lords, making the vote for the Union safe. In the Commons, the Minister had to do with what were called patronage boroughs, because not even one genuine constituency in Ireland could be got to sanction the Union. They persuaded Henry Grattan to re-enter Parliament and took all the steps to have his nomination legally ratified. Since three years previously, he had quit with several others of the patriotic party. In despair at the infamy and fraud practised by the ruling clique. Now once more he entered Parliament and took those oaths that restored him to membership. Because of his recent illness, he requested permission to deliver his address while seated. 
When this was granted, he delivered, with his usual powerful eloquence, a two-hour speech. The whole debate went on for a total of 16 hours, from 7 o'clock on that evening of the 15th until 11 on the forenoon of the 16th of January, 1800, when the vote was taken and Ireland's doom was sealed. There now commenced the struggle for supremacy in the Irish Senate House in College Green, Dublin. The House of Parliament was invariably surrounded by military forces. The debate went on and into the next day, being dragged out in the clever scheme of things and calculating that those who were on the weak and losing side must surely give way in despair to those whose votes were bought and paid for and who, in order to sit out the long 20 hours debate, formed a dining club in one of the committee rooms. The Patriot Party met the opposition move for move when they dined, drank, slept and breakfasted with Grattan and others, organising and encouraging in order to keep up their spirits in a last desperate effort. In a daring move, the government party now formed a duelling club and Lord Castlereagh invited a picked band of 20 of the most skilful duelists who would call out any anti-unionist heard expressing himself against the conduct of the government party. In other words, Henry Grattan and his colleagues were to be shot down. On the 17th of February 1800, the House went into committee on the Articles of the Union, which were carried by a majority of 20 votes, deliberately bought by the Unionists. Where a clear example is cited in Barrington's Rise and Fall of the Irish Nation, the vote of Mr. Robert Fitzgerald of Corkabeg was secured by Lord Cornwallis, assuring him that, in the event of the Union, a royal dockyard would be built at Cork, which would double the value of his estates. A very serious altercation took place on this occasion also, when Isaac Corrie, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, made a virulent verbal attack on the enfeebled Henry Grattan. But he rose to the occasion with words as proud and strong as ever, and a challenge was called. And so Henry Grattan was at the centre of one of the most interesting duels in the history of Ireland. Motivated by political disagreement on the Act of Union, which Grattan vigorously opposed, Isaac Corrie and Grattan had verbally torn lumps out of each other inside the doomed Parliament, and when Corrie challenged Grattan to a duel at Ballsbridge, the challenge was accepted. Corrie represented Newry in the Irish Parliament, and it seems the planned duel between the men aroused the suspicion of the authorities. Frank Hopkins has noted that the sheriff attempted to have the duel stopped, but was pushed into a ditch by Corrie's second. Grattan succeeded in wounding Corrie in the arm, thus terminating, in one decisive encounter, Lord Castlereagh's plan for fighting down the opposition, and his duelling club faded away after that. Sir Jonah Barrington, 1756-1834, to 1834, describes the closing scene of the Irish Parliament in graphic details as follows. The Commons House of Parliament, on the last evening, afforded the melancholy example of an independent people, betrayed, divided, 
sold, and as a state, annihilated. British clerks and officers were smuggled into our Parliament to vote away the constitution of a country, to which they were strangers, and in which they had neither interest or connection. They were employed to cancel the Royal Charter of the Irish nation, guaranteed by the British government and sanctioned by British legislation, and unequivocally confirmed by the words, the signature, and the great seal of their monarch. The situation of the speaker on that night was of the most distressing nature. A sincere and ardent enemy of the measure, he headed its opponents, he resisted it with all the power of his mind, the resources of his experience, his influence and his eloquence. At length, the expected moment arrived, the order of the day for the third reading of the bill for a legislative union between Great Britain and Ireland, was moved by Lord Castlereagh, unvaried, tame, cold-blooded. The words seemed frozen as they issued from his lips, and, as if a simple citizen of the world, he seemed to have no sensation on the subject. At that moment he had no country, no God, but his ambition. He made his motion and resumed his seat with the utmost composure and indifference. The speaker rose slowly. He held up the bill for a moment, saying, As many as are of opinion that this bill do pass, say I. At length, with an eye averted from the object which he hated, he proclaimed with a subdued voice, The eyes have it. The fatal sentence was now pronounced. For an instant he stood statue-like, then indignantly, and with disgust, flung the bill upon the table and sank into his chair with an exhausted spirit. An independent country was thus degraded into a province. Ireland as a nation was extinguished. Thomas Moore wrote the following verse on that night. Thy riches and taunts shall be taken, thy valour with coldness repaid, and of millions who see thee, thus sunk and forsaken, not one shall stand forth in thine aid. In the nations thy place is left void, thou art lost in the list of the free. Even realms, by the plague or the earthquake destroyed, may revive, but no hope is for thee. The industrialization in England, according to the Ireland story by Wesley Johnson, forced Ireland to move more towards agriculture in order to produce viable export crops to make money. In fact, although economics forced the move, Ireland benefited by the improvement in her terms of trade. Once English merchants began buying Irish grain in 1806, large flour mills were built and communication routes and agricultural technology both improved. Cottage industry declined in favour of agriculture. Nevertheless, the poorest classes did not see much of this money because the benefit of higher export prices was cancelled out by the rise in food prices. In some ways, this polarisation towards food production increased the poor's vulnerability to crop failure. As the farmers got poorer, they were forced to sell more of their crops, usually oats, for money while eating more potatoes, a crop that couldn't be 
transported easily. In the 1830s, the government decided to tackle poverty in Ireland. A number of inquiries were carried out, the most famous being the Irish Poor Inquiry, which was based largely on the experience of a similar scheme in Britain. The British report determined that public workhouses, rather than charity, were the best solution to the problem of poverty. The Irish report rejected this policy, but was itself rejected due to the radical nature of its recommendations. Instead, the workhouse policy was extended to Ireland. Other policies introduced included free primary education and subsidised emigration, usually to Britain or the United States. Workhouses were buildings designed for the poorest in society, who could no longer afford to live outside. They were run on the principles of discipline, work, separation from family and dull food. A total of 130 workhouses, with a capacity for 100,000 people, were commissioned in the 1830s, the last being completed in 1843. Although conditions were harsh, they were never intended to be the overcrowded, disease-ridden pits that they became during the famine. Before the famine, they were usually run at around 40% of capacity, and in fact, comparatively fewer Irish people entered the workhouses than in Britain. Funny as it may seem now, the designers had originally worried that non-needy cases would enter the workhouses in order to live off the taxpayers. In reality, those who entered the workhouses were genuinely needy, although entering a workhouse was a matter of choice. There was, in reality, no other option for the poorest people. In 1844, 40% of inmates were not of working age, and the third were sick on entry. One time when walking down the lane as night was drawing nigh, I met a colleen with three flowers and she more young than I. you, dear, said I, if you be quick to tell the place where you did find these flowers I seem to know so well. She took the flower and kissed it once and softly said, It's the youngest flower of all And I'll keep it fresh beside my breast Though all the world should fall She took and kissed the next flower twice softly said to me This flower comes from the Antrim hills Outside Belfast said she It name it called it is Wolf Tone 
the bravest flower of all And I'll keep it fresh beside my breast Beside my breast, 